What makes for a good life? Such a simple question, but we don't have great answers, and many people go their whole lives without ever feeling like they figured it out. One place to look is science. In 1938, Harvard researchers started a study focused on finding answers to this most important question. Since then, they've followed people over the decades, hoping to identify which factors are linked to a happy, satisfying life. Eight decades later, the Harvard study of adult development is still going. And today, its directors, the psychiatrists Robert Waldinger and Mark Schulz, have published a book that pulls together the study's most important findings. It's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Back in the 30s, the research began with 724 people. Some were first-year Harvard students paying full tuition. Others were freshmen who needed financial help. And the rest were 14-year-old boys from inner-city Boston. White males only. Fortunately, the study team realized the error of their ways and expanded their sample to include the wives and daughters of the first participants. And Waldinger's book focuses on the Harvard study findings that could be corroborated by evidence from additional research on the lives of people of different races and other minorities. The study now includes over 1,300 relatives of the original participants, spanning three generations. Every two years, the participants have sent the researchers a filled-out questionnaire reporting how their lives are going. At five-year intervals, the research team takes a look at their health records, and every 15 years, the psychologists meet up with their subjects in person to check out their appearance and behavior. But they don't stop there. No, the researchers factor in multiple blood samples, DNA, images from body scans, and even the donated brains of 25 participants. I talked with Dr. Waldinger about the life lessons that can be mined from the Harvard study in his new book. Waldinger is clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, in addition to being director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. He got his MD from Harvard Medical School and has published numerous scientific papers. He's a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and teaches Harvard medical students. And since that's clearly not enough to keep him busy, he's also a Zen priest. His book is a must-read if you're looking for scientific evidence on how to design your life for more satisfaction, so someday in the future you can look back on it without regret. And this episode was an amazing conversation in which Dr. Waldinger breaks down many of the cliches about the good life, making his advice real and tangible. We also get into what he calls side-by-side -side relationships, personality traits for the good life, and the downsides of being too strict about work-life balance. I'm Matt Fuchs. And this is Making Sense of Science. Hello, Dr. Waldinger. It's fantastic to have you on the Leaps.org podcast. Thanks for joining the show to discuss your new book, The Good Life. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to discuss the book, which I loved. It's such an engaging read, and you do a great job of presenting what you call the personal adventures in being human from a scientific perspective. As director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, you have this amazing, amazing perch with which to view the trajectories of thousands of people's lives and to identify the most important factors and whether people are able to live in ways that make them happy and satisfied. And I have a bunch of specific questions but it would be um, great to just kind of like briefly ground the audience in a high-level overview of how long this study has run, how many people you've managed to study, and what has been the purpose? What are you looking to find out through the study? The study has been going for 85 years. It's, as far as we know, the longest study of the same people going through their entire adult lives that's ever been done 
it almost certainly will never be done in the same way again because it's so uh, serendipitous that we were able to continue for these decades. Um, started in 1938 with two groups of men, a group of Harvard College undergraduates, 19-year-olds, who were judged by their deans to be fine, upstanding young men, and they wanted to study the normal transition from young adult, from adolescence to young adulthood. You know, so of course, if you want to study normal development, you study all white men from Harvard. Uh, it's got a few problems in its specificity. But in addition, we have at the same time a study started in 1938 of boys from boston's poorest neighborhoods boys who were average age 10 11 12 when they came into the study um, and they were studied because they were from some of the most troubled families the question was how is it that some kids from really troubled disturbed families managed to stay on good paths developmentally so we've been following these two groups, one very privileged, advantaged, one quite disadvantaged. Um, and then we added their wives over time. And then we've added the second generation, more than half of whom are female. Uh, so we've broadened uh, our base. Yeah, that's uh, and I want to get into it's just an amazing study in its scope and ambition and implementation follow through to be able to you know have basically eight decades of following people's lives and trying to extract the um, you know kind of like the most important factors in these people's lives that actually led to the outcomes if you will um, whether they were satisfied in the in the end and um, so I want to get into some questions I have about how you've measured that but I also just conceptually I'm really interested in how you, in the book that you've written, The Good Life, seem to triangulate a bit between three overlapping concepts, what I would seem to me like overlapping concepts. And one would be sort of like health, both physical and mental, something that I think you refer to as thriving and flourishing. And then the third concept, which I think is sort of implied by the title of the book, is sort of like these, a philosophical notion of the, the quote-unquote good life. Um, how do you define a good life for the purpose of the study and for your book? Well, the three things you named are uh, all kind of essential aspects of well-being that science has identified and differentiated. I mean, we sort of know these anecdotally, but there have been good systematic studies um, talking about certainly health as being central to well-being, uh, that when your health is poor, physical or mental, or both, you suffer greatly, and your sense of having a good life is, is greatly diminished. Um, but then there is this larger thing we call flourishing, uh, feeling like you're having a good, meaningful life. Um, and finally, there is the philosophy of what makes a good life, going all the way back to the ancients. Um, and I think what we find is that people vary, that all of these things are important, but people vary in the extent to which they prioritize having a good time, you know, going to good parties, feeling good right now, um, having a sense that my life has purpose and meaning, 
um, or even just having interesting experiences that aren't always fun, that all of us uh, value all three, but some people really love the great parties. For some people, it's not the great parties. It's meaning and purpose long-term. And for others, it's just having a stimulating existence. So I think we are, what we see is that one form of happiness does not fit all, that, that each of us is a kind of mix and each of us prioritizes one over the others. Yeah, this, this might be getting a little outside the scope of your book, but I, I can't help but ask, and it's sort of like was in the back of my mind as I was reading the book, whether, and again, to this, con- this idea of um, the definition of a good life, whether you see anything objective as part of that, like, you know, could, could someone go through their life um, feeling, having the subjective sense that they are thriving and flourishing, um, but, you know, maybe other people looking at that life maybe centuries later um, saying that, you know, object- objectively speaking, by uh, the standards that we have now, the life was not such a good life. And I, the two classic examples or maybe most trite, cliche <laughs> versions of this would be a slave owner or a Nazi. Um, you know, a slave owner could have had the subjective sense that they had a, a thriving, flourishing life. We would look back centuries later and be like, that was not a good life because you were dedicated to uh, owning slaves. As a, I mean, it's a terrific question. And I think, obviously, it depends on your perspective that, you know, if the if the Nazi, if the slave owner decides that he's had a good life, well, that's what he or she decides, right? But from an external view, uh, that person has done a lot of harm in the world. So I think, you know, we, we often think, well, how will history judge our lives? How will history judge what we do? And that's a different perspective from how do I think about how I'm living right now? Um, neither one is the, is the end all. Um, I think I would say that not doing harm is an essential part of having a good life because I have a strong Buddhist practice and in Buddhism, minimizing harm is, is at the core of what a Buddhist practice and Buddhist way of life is about. Um, but for other people, it's amassing wealth, it's amassing power, it's invading countries. That's what yeah. makes a good life. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if there is some sort of something circular here about if you have a purpose that does end up causing harm to others, even if you maybe like might say on some level that you're thriving or doing really, being really successful, that it might ultimately affect your happiness if you're just sort of like basic human need. You talk a lot in the book about generativity and, you know, contributing to um, people's happiness other than just your own happiness. Um, it does seem like, you know, there, there are probably some, some touch points between the objective version of happiness and thriving and the subjective yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are there, you know, that old cliche, what goes around comes around. Um, I'll give you a quote from the Dalai Lama. He said, the wise, selfish person takes care of other people. The idea being that if even if you're selfish, if you take care of other people, it will pay you dividends. So yes, what we seem to find is that people who do invest in causes beyond the self, 
and invest in other people's well-being get a great deal of both gratification but often get rewarded through reciprocity for example yeah that that's a that's a powerful idea and maybe to reach people who are on the more selfish track uh to look beyond their their own navel gazing um in addition to self-report questions the the harvard study has really taken some interesting approaches to measurement including brain scanning blood tests sampling hair for stress hormones among other examples and i guess one question i have related to measuring the good life is you know, you, you write in the book that no picture of a human life can ever be complete. Uh, and so there's sort of like some limits to how much we can we can know, objectively speaking, for any study. But I think this study seems to have come as close as possible, um, given current technology. Is there a role for technology that's become available just in the past few years, like wearables, you know, that people 24-7 monitoring physiological signs of how people are doing and, um, you know, maybe like machine learning or artificial intelligence could could sift through the 84 years of data that you've collected to spot important factors in life's satisfaction that maybe like humans uh, would otherwise miss. There's a really important role for newer technologies, you know, and as you've pointed out, we're kind of a history of scientific research in that we study the same big things you know, mental health, physical health, well-being, relationships, but we add in advances in technology as they come online. So, for example, you know, we draw blood for DNA. In 1938, when the study was started, DNA wasn't even imagined, right? So, and you're right that wearables, wearables allow us to do what's sometimes referred to in my language as ecological momentary assessment, meaning you can do moment-to-moment measures of, for example, heart rate, um, skin conductivity, uh, all kinds of measures of stress reactivity, and then recovery from stress that we couldn't begin to do 20 years ago, certainly not 50 years ago. So again, those things um, are turning out to have great potential for studying at more micro levels, particularly how the human body reacts over time, you know, in, in moments of time and then over broad swaths of time. And to what you said about processing, you know, using AI to process language. I mean, we correct, collect, we collect reams of data um, and some of that is natural language. Some of that is in people's own words. There is now the field of natural language processing, which uses artificial intelligence to process vast amounts of natural language to see what it can glean um, about everything from mood states, like whether you can glean whether someone's depressed from a natural language processing algorithm um, to gleaning their life satisfaction from the words they use to gleaning their the stability of their couple relationship by looking at the number of times they use the word we instead of the word I. So there are all these possibilities. Um, and I, I just find it all really exciting. The other thing is that what we do is we take 
these new technologies, we collect data and put it alongside our old-fashioned data, like questionnaires and interviews. So we do old school and new school, and we combine them and see what they can tell us. Methodologically, how does that work? If you're, is it still apples to apples? If you're, is there anything that gets tricky if you're adding different measures in the course of what I presume to be is considered the same study? How does that, does that shift the playing field at all? It's methodologically very complex. So it's easy to, to do kind of a mashup, you know, of DNA and a self-report of life satisfaction. But that mashup could be so crude that it's completely misleading. So what it requires is a lot of careful thought about what each type of measurement uh, tells us, the time frame of each measurement, the vantage points from each measure from which each measurement is made, potential confounds, potential contaminants of each measurement. So all of that needs to be done. And, and we've been lucky. We've collaborated with scientists who specialize particularly in combining, for example, biological measures and psychosocial measures for just the reason you're pointing out, that this can be really tricky and could lead you astray if you're not careful. I really admire how the study and you have taken such innovative steps and been responsive to what technology is available to kind of penetrate beyond just self-report because of all the challenges that are involved in, in that to, to really get, you know, and then including self-report, but going beyond that to get a fuller picture. I'm sure that that just has contributed to the accuracy of, you know, your 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 research and the findings that you um, have accumulated. And I, I do want to get into those findings, which is, I think, I mean, what I get from the book loud and clear is, is the value of relationships. Having good relationships seems to have risen to the top of your your kind of list of, of findings and what is linked to having a satisfying life. And um, so what are the biggest benefits that people can reap from having really good relationships in their lives? And what are the best ways to, um, to have those good relationships? Sure, sure. Well, first, let me say that this finding about how important relationships are, especially for our physical health, rose to the top. It almost had to hit us over the head. Like we didn't believe the findings at first. Because, you know, how exactly could a warm relationship get into your body and change it? How, how could that possibly work? And, and it was only when other research groups began finding the same things that we said, okay, this is real and this is popping up all over the place in research studies. And so that's important because, you know, no single study, including ours, proves anything. But especially in this kind of research, you really want multiple studies pointing in the same direction. So then to your question, um, what are some of the benefits? Well, there are certainly the, the, the kind of plain old obvious benefits. Like if you have good relationships, you've got somebody who will loan you their car or give you a ride to the doctor when you need it or loan you money when you're out of cash or, you know, there are just so many ways in which the, you know, having more friendly connections means that when you're in trouble or you're in need, someone will be there to help you out. And then there is the 
um, there are the emotional benefits. So one of the things we think about with relationships is that they seem to be emotion regulators. They seem to be stress regulators. So let me give you an example. Let's say you have something really upsetting happen in your day and, and you're ruminating about it and you're really upset and, and you're, you're all your body, you can feel your body rev up, your heart rate revs up, your blood pressure gets elevated, you might start to sweat. And then you go home and there's somebody at home, either right there with you or somebody you can call, who's a good sympathetic listener. And you go on and on about how bad it was during the day. You can literally feel your body calm down. You can literally feel that return to a, a physiologic baseline. And so what we think relationships often do is that they help us return after we've had a fight or flight response, a stress response, they help the body return to baseline. And if you think about it, what if you don't have anybody to talk to about these things? Then what we believe happens is that the body stays in a kind of low level fight or flight response, which means low-level circulating stress hormones, low-level chronic inflammation that over time can break down multiple body systems. And so that's how we think relationships get into the body for better and for worse. Yeah, I wonder if there's sort of like a, uh, not to be crude or overly simplistic, but some kind of ratio between, I mean, you talk in the book about how it's good to have lots of different types of relationships. And I, I think that that diversity of relationships is probably a lot to it. But I wonder if like having a certain uh, majority or some percentage of those relationships being of the stress regulation kind <laughs> versus, uh, you know, the ones in, in our lives who are more put us social relationships that put us into the fight or flight uh, response is, um, important, right? Like if, if you have zero uh, people at home who are going to have that uh, emotional stress regulation, uh, bring you back down to uh, the baseline, uh, then you're going to suffer. If, if, the, if, if there's no one like that in your life, but there are lots of people outside your home who are like maybe a bad boss or your coworkers who are driving you crazy. Um, and the other um, benefit that you I think talk about in the book is, is growth and how, you know, having, again, lots of different types of relationships in your life can introduce you to new things in, in life that you might not have otherwise been exposed to. That seems like an important benefit as well. Absolutely. Um, so as far as I know, there's no, there's no research on what's the right balance of stressful and non, and non-stressful relationships. Um, there's, there's probably no balance that's right for everybody. What we do know is that some people are extroverted, some people are more introverted, so some people don't want a lot of relationships, period. Some people get their energy from lots of people around. There's no right or wrong, there's no healthy or unhealthy about which end of the spectrum you're on. Um, but what we do know is that Everybody probably needs one relationship that's a safety net. One relationship where people, I feel like this person has my back. I'll give you an example from our research. We, we asked people at one point, 
list all the people in your life who you could call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared. And some of our folks couldn't list anybody. And some of them were even married and couldn't list anybody. And some of them had a list of, you know, quite a few people they could call. And what we find and what developmental research finds, both child development and adult development, is that having at least one person like that seems to play a vital role in making you feel like the world is a a safe place. Yeah, and you you write in the book that the frequency and quality of our contacts with other people are the two major predictors of happiness. And so I, I suppose that that frequency aspect would vary based on maybe personality and, you know, maybe... The, maybe there are people out there who just need one um, really positive relationship in their life. Um, not to say that's their only relationship, but that's the one, sort of like their bedrock. And then others, maybe they need more than 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 one. Um, is that right? That frequency and quality will will vary, I presume, based on what you just said, based on personality. Yes, and that's really important because you know our culture kind of glorifies extroversion you know, really outgoing people. And and really what we know is that introverts are just fine. And introverts are some of the healthiest people around. And so it's really a matter of what your needs are. And and so I wanna I wanna put that out there because I won't I don't want people to feel like, well, if I don't really have a lot of relationships, I'm in trouble. It really is the, the, what you want to check in with yourself about is, am I, am I as connected to people as I'd like to be? And if I'm not as connected, there might be things I can do to become more connected. Yeah, we need, we need some social media websites that prioritize quality relationships over the number. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Social media for introverts. <laughs> I like that. I think I'm going to start that. Um, so there's a great graph Uh, in your book that I have to ask about of one of the study participants' marital marital satisfaction across his life. Um, And it's a U-shaped curve, uh, basically meaning that, you know, it started out pretty high when he got married, this this individual, and then it it dropped off into the trough of of middle, around the time of middle age. And then it it came back up uh, as he got older into maybe his 60s, 70s. And it very much reminded me of other research that I've seen on the U-shaped curve that seems to represent life satisfaction across the lifespan more generally, not in the context of relationships. And I'm, I'm wondering, how have you accounted for this other U-shaped curve? Uh, is it possible that overall drops in life satisfaction in middle age cause declines in relationships versus the low quality relationships driving the drops in life satisfaction? That is such a good question. And it's, it's really, it really cuts to the heart of this issue that we face all the time as developmental researchers, which is that there are so many factors and to tease out what's causing what, what's influencing what can be really hard. So you're absolutely right. It could well be that it is the all the pressures of middle age that drag down your relationship satisfaction versus the opposite. One thing we do find, though, 
um, is that uh, particularly now, you know, in 2022, the age at which people marry and have children is more varied than it used to be, right? Like some people start this, you know, in their early 20s. Some people start this in their 40s or even in their 50s. Um, and what we do find is that that U-curve of marital satisfaction seems to happen regardless of the age at which you start your married life. And so that leads me to think that there's some independence of this marital satisfaction curve from the general life curve of getting older and moving into middle age. Does that make sense? It really does. Yeah, I, I mean, there I guess there's different ways of looking at it, but I think of like the seven year itch. I don't know if <laughs> like things yeah. that happen within the context of, of relationships that um, affect, you know, if you're living with someone for long enough, you know, you, you kind of maybe be, start to be crave more novelty. Um, um, yeah, yeah, it, it does make sense. I, I think that, you know, there I have a few questions along this same line of, you know, different variables that um, could affect life satisfaction. It's, it must be so complex to try to account for these different variables and see how they independently affect how people are happy and their satisfaction. I mean, I think of personality type. We've talked a little bit about introverts versus extroverts. Um, but you mentioned a few traits throughout the book that are related to happiness and relationships. Like there's free will comes up, which I think is uh, your, your treatment of, of that topic is really fascinating in the book. There's also willingness to face toward challenging emotions and problems. You also talk about the ability to process emotions. And then there's being able to flex with changing circumstances. And there's curiosity. And so I guess my my question looking across these different traits is, you know, again, methodologically, how are you able to um, account for for them? And like curiosity could translate into interest in other people. Uh, and it certainly does. And it, I'm sure it, it translates into better relationships because you're more interested in other people, uh, not just yourself. But of course, it could lead to interesting hobbies and, and other passions that aren't related necessarily specifically to relationships that increase someone's overall life satisfaction. So how, how were, you, were you able, did you look at any of these personality traits to see if they independently predict life satisfaction? It is hard to tease out you know, which personality traits there's, you know, there are the big five personality traits, introversion, extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, you know, um, but, um, but it's often hard to say, well, people who are high on this trait are more satisfied. There are some traits that seem not to work well. And they're, is that, uh, they're often, um, they're often associated with psychopathology. You know, my other hat is as a psychiatrist. And so I work with people who, you know, and these traits are more along the lines of what you were talking about with self-centeredness. So people who are more focused on the self, uh, particularly people who are quite narcissistic, tend not to have lives that are so satisfying. They have more difficulty throughout their lives, generally. Not everybody, but 
more often than not. Similarly, people who are paranoid, people who who see uh, see people as being out to get them when they actually are not, those people, as you can imagine, have more trouble uh, going through life and and feel like the world is an unsatisfying, dangerous place. So there, so there are certain personality traits that don't work well, we know. Yeah, that, I want to ask in that same context about get into life stages a little bit. Um, because it seems to me like it's never a good thing to be self-centered and to be just only thinking about yourself. But maybe there's some shades of gray there where like there's certain times in one's life where um, you don't want to only focus on yourself, but I'm thinking maybe of someone's career and like when you're maybe starting out in your career, um, it's it can be maybe some people, what would you say uh, to people who, and I, I know them personally, who feel like they have to look out for themselves, right? Professionally, because other people just aren't going to take care of their careers, for them, and so not to say that they would be uh, wise to be selfish, um, but there might be certain times in one's life when it is, um, they might say, helpful to focus on themselves more so than you know maybe in retirement um, when uh, you know you're no longer working and uh, it's maybe more uh, social time uh, for, for those people. There are there any um, changes over the lifespan where some of these traits are, are more valuable than others? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, certainly I would say across the lifespan, the entire lifespan, there has to be a balance between taking care of yourself and investing in others and causes outside of yourself. There has to be. I mean, we know people who invest too much in others and not enough in themselves and they burn out. I mean, burnout is one of the things we're, we're struggling with right now in our culture. Um, so yes, at all ages, self-care, self-interest is really important. As you say, is that, you know, self-interest in career. Um, young adulthood is often a time where we're trying to figure out, can I find meaningful work? Uh, can I be good at something and succeed at something? Those are very legitimate aspirations, not to be pushed away or, or made wrong, right? Um, and, and even in later life, let's say when you retire, there are people who burn out being too devoted to being caregivers for grandchildren or, or disabled relatives, you know, who, who are so devoted that they burn out and, and uh, damage their own health. So this balance needs to happen at every stage of life, but the issues are often different. What we're trying to do at different stages, you know, what your, what your goals are in your 20s are usually different from what your goals are in your 70s, um, as they should be. But this balance of self and, and caring for others has got to be there all the way along. Right. And, and um, I wonder about uh, some of the um, people who you uh, focus on in the book. Uh, they're great portraits of these people's lives. And you can, in a few pages, you can walk through, you walk through these people's lives and you show kind of like from the time that they were 
very young teenagers or even younger and how they progressed over the course of their lives and what were the most you know, important factors that um, contributed to their happiness or took away from their happiness. And it's just fascinating. Some of the people, you know, uh, report, I think there was a lawyer who you, um, through the course of these measurements that you took throughout life, you saw that he was very unhappy, or it seemed like he was very unhappy um, from his replies to the, the questions with his life. And we also talk in other parts of the book how important it is to have challenges in your life, that a happy life is not one that's laid back and really easy. And how do you look for the right signals there? Because it seems like people could, again, thinking about these different life stages, they could go through periods in their lives where they don't feel particularly happy or they might not self-report a lot of you know, pleasantness in a day-to-day experience, but they're going through something that is challenging and important to them and ultimately will be satisfying. I'm not saying that's the case for the, that particular lawyer because it doesn't seem like it, it came true in, in his case. But how do you like parse the different signals and you know, kind of like um, when someone's going through that challenging phase in their life, um, account for the possibility that they might be doing it because it's necessary ultimately to their overall life satisfaction later? Well, certainly what we find you know, in studying these thousands of lives is that big challenges come along in every life. They just do. I mean, you know, if you think about COVID, it came along for all of us out of the blue. Um, and all of us have times when life is really hard, um, where we suffer losses, we suffer setbacks. And so that's, all, that's a given. That's expectable, unfortunately. That's, that's just part of being human. And, and then you're asking this important question, which is, what then, what I think you're asking what kind of drags you down and what allows you to kind of come back and thrive. And in part, it's the the circumstances. Like any of us could be completely beaten down if enough things hit us at once, enough really hard things, and hopefully that doesn't happen. But then the other balancing factor is the safety net that that we can have with relationships. So you have a really hard time uh, terrible setbacks in your job, in your health, but you have people to help you through it. Often when we do come through, when the challenge is one that we can meet because we have resources that help us get through it, then we emerge stronger. Um, when the challenge is overwhelming, then it often weakens us. And, and so we think about the balance between is a challenge one that we have the resources to meet or or one that we do not have the resources to meet? Yeah, I, I think that I'm also thinking of people who, when they are working on uh, maybe like a job or a passion that's related to their work that is really hard and say they're, they're maybe not even sleeping as much as um, they would like because it's so important to them to accomplish something larger than themselves. And they might not feel particularly happy in that moment. Um, is it, uh, is, as I'm also thinking of kind of like the experiencing versus remembering self, like that dynamic between how you might look back on 
uh, and something that went you did in your life as not very happy or happy, but when you were experiencing it, it was a very different sort of emotional experience. And you, you talk about people in their 70s and 80s, looking back on their lives, they said that uh, a lot of them said that relationships were the most important thing. But I wonder about, you know, like when people are in middle age, they might feel like their work is the most important thing. And did you wait sort of like who was right in that? It's like the same person um, reported that their work was most important to their happiness in their middle uh, periods. And then that same person, when they got older, reported that relationships were actually the most important thing in their lives looking back. Which would you say is the most important thing for that person? Well, you're, you're pointing to this issue of like, do we look back and distort our lives? Do we look back through a, through a distorting lens, rose-colored glasses, whatever, uh, and really life wasn't that way as we were living it? And it's hard to know because you can never step into the same river twice, right? So um, it is very difficult to know, except that we do have data. One of the things about a longitudinal study is that we have data on what life was like for people in their 50s. And we have, you know, we don't just have the 80-year-old looking back. We have what he or she was like in their 50s. So we can look to some extent. And, you know, as, as we keep saying, it's never one or the other. It's always a combination. So, yes, people in midlife are more focus typically on certain goals that they need to achieve, raising good kids, being good at their job, variety of things. Um, Whereas looking back, you can opine from a position of having been through a lot. There is no way definitively to answer the question you asked. Um, But I think what we do know is that the people who had better connections with others while they were going through it were happier while they were going through it. So let's say the middle, younger and middle-aged people, that they were happier in those moments at those eras of their lives. And I love your points about some of the downfalls of focusing on work-life balance, which I think has sort of become a, a mantra for some people. How might it actually be better to combine some elements of work and personal life? What are some, some good strategies for getting satisfaction from both work and personal life? Well, you know, we we talk about this some in the book, the fact that we spend, many of us spend most of our waking lives at work. So it's not like there's work and then there's life. Work is a big part of our awake time. So I think one of the things we talk about is the importance of trying to treat your work life in some ways as similar to how you would treat the rest of your life, meaning that the connections you have, uh, the way you feel at work should be a priority. And that means paying some attention to developing friendships, nurturing connections. And we, we know even from the Gallup organization who's done vast surveys of workers all over the world that people who have a friend at work are way more engaged in their jobs they're they're much less likely to leave those jobs. Um, They are 
more productive, and the bottom line for the company they work for is better. Um, so all this is to say that uh, friendships at work are not a distraction. Uh, they're not looking for love in the wrong place. They really do matter for not just for our well-being, but for our performance as workers. And I love the point you make about having relationships with the people that you help through your work. Um, even if you don't have much direct social interaction with these people, could help you derive a sense of meaning from your work. And I wonder if you could talk a little, a little bit about that. And is, is that, do you count that as sort of like contributing to one's relationships, even if they don't, you know, um, like you talk, I think it's Louisa is the person who coordinated, sorry, I might be getting that name wrong, to co- help to coordinate the Harvard study. And um, Louise, yes. Louise, yes. And she got a real sense of connection with those people even though she wasn't interacting with them on a day in day out basis. And I think of myself as a, you know, a writer, um, you know, writing hopefully for uh, a lot of readers. And I'd like to think that I kind of have a relationship with the people who read the articles that, that I write is, is that a form of the relationships that can contribute to people's happiness? It is a form that can contribute to happiness because there's a satisfaction in both the connections. So I bet there are people who tell you, Matt, I read this article you wrote and it really made a difference to me. And I assume that makes a difference to you, that it's, that it's really important that, that people read what you put out there and that it matters to them. And I think that Louise Gregory, our, our wonderful study coordinator, had that same experience that she develop these connections with with our participants and it mattered to her and they would write her letters about their lives and and um, ask how she was and that um, even if we are not together with the people that we uh, we are connected to it can matter I mean I think this is one reason why online connections can be important and nurturing so yes, Passively consuming Instagram feeds and doom scrolling, we know that makes us more depressed. It makes us more anxious. But actively connecting with people online um, can actually feel good and feel meaningful. And so there are ways to use these remote connections in ways that nurture our lives. And relatedly, you you talk about this concept, which I I really love, of side-by-side relationships. And it seems like one reason potentially relationships could be so important is that they can be side-by-side to so many activities that are enjoyable, satisfying, and healthy. Like, you know, you can have social relationships through exercise or hobbies or a passionate purpose at work. Would you say that's a contributing factor to a lot of people, why relationships are so important to a lot of people? It can be a huge factor. It can also be an important factor in starting relationships in the first place. So for people who say, you know, I don't really have many good relationships, often one remedy can be to to get side by side with a bunch of people working on something that everybody cares about. It could be increasing 
uh, literacy. It could be teaching English as a second language. It could be uh, volunteering in your community to build a playground or plant a garden. I mean, so many things you can do. But if you, if you are, find yourself side by side with people who also care about the thing you are doing, that's a natural way to strike up conversations, to share other interests, and eventually we find research-wise to develop more lasting relationships. And I was struck by sort of the meta point that I, I respect maybe your, your uh, <clears throat> discipline and not going there because it would have might have been confusing. But I mean, I, when you're talking about side-by-side relationships, it just struck me that, I mean, you did talk about this actually to some extent in the book, but your relationship with Mark, your, your, the co-author of your book and the associate director of the study, he, uh, that, that seems like a, a, maybe one of the best examples of a side-by-side relationship in the book. Absolutely. We became buddies around research. And, uh, and then we became so much more in terms of our friendship. I mean, we've shared our family lives. We've shared hobbies. Um, so, you know, he's one of my closest friends. Um, but it started out where we were both working in the research lab of a particular mentor. And, uh, and that was how it all started. That's great. Um, I want to talk about uh, some other factors that seem to be involved specifically in health. Um, of course, it's an important finding that relationships are most important or seem to be most one of the most important, if not the most important. Um, but did you find other factors that are high on the list? I'm curious about what some of those other um, factors might be. Like when it comes to brain health, um, there's some credible organizations like the AARP Council on Brain Health that have found that the most important factor for staying mentally sharp is making sure to exercise regularly. And relationships are, are definitely high on their list, but they actually recommend exercise as the most important for staying mentally sharp. And I'm just curious, what do you think about that finding and how it fits in and maybe other factors that are high on the list? Yes, and, and I don't want to give the impression that this is a horse race and that relationships win the horse race, right? They're more important than everything else. No, actually... One of the biggest findings of our 85 years of data is that taking care of your body, taking care of your physical health is hugely impactful on how you live, how long you live, how long you stay healthy. So it's exercise. And I totally concur with the AARP's recommendation. The research tells us that physical activity is a great preserver of cognitive health as well as physical health. Similarly, you know, getting enough sleep, not being addicted to alcohol or drugs, um, getting, you know, having a decent diet, taking care of your health, getting health care, getting preventive health care, all of that hugely important. Uh, the most, probably the most important thing you can do perhaps Next to relationships, not necessarily better or worse, but boy, taking care of your physical health is is um, is as important as anything we know in terms of assuring that you're going to have a longer, healthier life. Yeah, and I imagine mental health too could contribute a lot to people's ability to have really, really good relationships in their lives. Um, maybe some of the bi-directionality involved with, with these factors. It's again, it seems like a really complicated 
landscape. Um, but that is interesting to hear you talk about the, the value of, of physical health. And, um, and then I, I have to ask, because I'm sure a lot of people are, uh, might be wondering, and you do talk about this um, fascinatingly in your book, sort of um, the um, overlap when it comes to relationships as a major priority in the good life for men and women. Uh, could you talk a bit about the differences and overlaps that you found between men and women when it comes to uh, how they prioritize relationships? We looked at this, and particularly when we were writing the book, we said, okay, we're going to see where is the research right now, you know, in 2022 on differences between men's and women's friendships and relationships, because there has been a lot of discussion about women being much better at relationships, much more into relationships, having different kinds of relationships. It turns out that the differences aren't that great. When they study, you know, thousands of people in good empirical studies, men and women both value relationships. Men and women both try to engage in relationships. There can be some differences based on how we're socialized, like women do probably talk things over more naturally and men may be more side by side. That's one argument, um, you know, that men, men may play basketball together while women will sit and discuss their kids together. But those are, to some extent, stereotypes and men and women do both. So I think what I would want to leave you know, your audience with is the sense that the differences are not nearly as great as the similarities between what men and women do and what they want in their relationships. Yeah. I think there is this stereotype that men are more interested in things and women are more interested in people. And I think that your book does a really good job of breaking down that stereotype. And I've one of the stats that stands out to me among many that you give in the book are that I think it was 30% of men, men said that they were not satisfied and would like much more satisfaction with their work, work relationships, but only 6% of women were not satisfied, which sort of shows, underscores that need that men have for, for good relationships in, in a lot of different contexts. Um, so, Dr. Waldinger, thank you again for joining the show to discuss your new book, The Good Life. It's fantastic, uh, fantastic read. I, I really learned a lot from it. An incredibly important book and an amazing study, again, uh, covering 84 years of research across the generations. I look forward to artificial intelligence <laughs> getting introduced into the study as a, a measure, uh, perhaps, if it, if it works out sometime in the future to sift through. I'd be curious what these natural language processors are able to find sifting through the, the reams of 84 years of, of data. So I'll, I will uh, stay tuned for that, as well as um, you know, other important findings to continue coming out of this research. Um, I guess, you know, one last question I have to wrap it up is, what is the future of this study? How long are you going <laughs> to, do you plan to just run it uh, for the foreseeable future, forever? What, what's the, the game plan? Well, we are collecting data right now, even as we speak, on our second generation. Um, 
we don't know what the future is. There's so much complexity in the decision to whether to reach out to the grandchildren and even the great-grandchildren because it gets so much bigger, so much com more complex. So I think the, the answer is stay tuned. This is yet to be determined. Um, but right now the study goes on and, and we are thrilled to be able to continue doing it. Excellent. And I am thrilled to be able to continue benefiting from the, the findings and uh, maybe it'll lead to a, a sequel, a, a, a new book uh, at some point uh, a decade or two from now. Dr. Waldinger, thank you again. I, I really appreciate your time and really happy to share your work and encourage um, everyone to go out and buy the book when it comes out in, in January. Is that right? In January. Excellent. And this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I love getting to talk about these things and, uh, and thought your questions were so uh, elucidating. It helped me bring out a lot of the things that were most important about our work. So thank you. Excellent. Likewise. Thank you, Dr. Wildinger. Thanks for checking out the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impacts, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles that explore health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Thanks for reading, listening, and most importantly, thinking about what you find on leaps.org. <laughs>